Okay, well, let's see what's going on with Midas Touch, latest and greatest. Thanks for 142k. You have impeccable taste. Sicko arrested 13 count federal indictments. Eh, eh. Worst of his life. Day of his life. Ellis from the Midas Touch Network. MAGA Republican George Santos was arrested and taken into custody today in a central Iceland federal Trump courthouse arrested and taken in the into federal custody. court for the Eastern District of New York where a 13 count federal indictment against MAGA Republican George Santos was unsealed. The United States Attorney for the Eastern District of New York released the following statement, quote, this indictment seeks to hold George Santos mm -hmm. accountable for various alleged fraudulent schemes and brazen misrepresentations <laughs> taken together <laughs> The allegations in the indictment charge Santos with relying on repeated name. dishonesty and deception to. <laughs> LOL. Great band name. Send to the halls of Congress and enrich himself. Great he used political name. contributions to line his pocket. <laughs> Unlawfully applied for unemployment benefits that should have gone to New Yorkers who had lost their jobs due to the pandemic and lied to the House of Representatives. And so the 13-count indictment, which we'll uh, show for you now, is broken down into the three categories that the uh, United States Attorney for the Eastern District of New York set forth in that statement. Uh, they include fraudulent campaign contributions. They include uh, money laundering, theft of public funds with respect to this unemployment uh, benefit uh, fraud scheme that he engaged in, and then these false statements. So, um, breaking down the indictment into these categories, uh, with respect to the first category of these uh, unlawful campaign contributions uh, and the fraud, what George Santos did is he created uh, a company which is just listed in the indictment as company number one. Uh, an entity that George Santos controlled, the DeVolder organization, was listed as having a controlling interest in company number one. Um, but company number one utilized a political operative who's listed in the indictment as just political consultant or operative number one. And this individual, in concert with George Santos, would lie uh, to potential donors and claim that this company was a 501c4, uh, that it was uh, a campaign organization um, that was raising money for George Santos, but it was not a 501c4. It was an LLC, and George Santos would take the donations that he received from this company that he created, where he told donors it was going to support his campaign. Santos would take that money and Santos would buy himself luxurious items from clothing to trips to 
dinners and, and other assorted kind of luxury gifts that he would buy himself. But they used this company and lied to donors and claimed that it was a political organization when it was just an LLC. Uh, and the indictment talks about, I think, two separate payments of about $25,000 uh, that were being made to this LLC that George Santos was then uh, taking for himself. The second main category, I'll go through the indictment with you again so you can see it, but I want to frame the kind of general gist of what's in there. The kind of second major category is defrauding uh, the state of New York for unemployment benefits. Even though George Santos had a job where he was actually making close to $120,000 a year, he claimed that he was unemployed due to COVID and received unemployment checks totaling about $24,000 that he was not entitled to receive based on the actual income that he was earning. That's the second major category. And the third major category in this indictment is the making of false statements in these House of Representative disclosure mm -hmm. forms, both in 2020 and then in 2022. And if you read this indictment, I'll, I'll show you the portions where it says this. You know, one of the very strange things is that in the original disclosure form, when Santos ran in 2020 and lost, he claimed his income was around $50,000 a year, $55,000 a year. Then in 2022, he claimed his income was about $750,000, and he received over a million dollars in addition to that in dividends from the DeVolder organization. So he tried to portray himself as a very wealthy you know, individual uh, who made all of this money. And what we've always been talking about here is it really made no sense. How did this individual who claimed essentially to be unemployed in 2020 then claimed to be a millionaire in 2022 well it turns out based on this indictment he was lying in both years like in the 2020 time period he was making more money than he actually reported but he was again lying about his income to get these uh, benefits from uh, unemployment benefits that were intended for people who were unemployed due to COVID. He was making around $120,000 a year, I think, uh, I think in total for this investment company that he was working for. Um, and then he's never made, according to this criminal indictment, like that number $750,000 and a million dollars in dividends and all of that, like that's just made up. It's a false statement. So one of the charges is just making false statements. And why would he lie? Because he lies about everything, right? He lied that he went to Baruch College. He lied that he was a successful Wall Street banker. He lied about his charity, Friends of Pets United, which wasn't even a real charity. He lied that both of his parents were in 9-11 or they died in 9-11 or they survived 9-11. He died that his grandparents, you know, were in the Holocaust. He lies about everything. So here he lied in 2020 that he was making less money. And then in 2022, he lied that he's making millions of dollars to, so he can portray himself to be a successful businessman. I want to go through the indictment, but I do want to share with you this. Because I believe at the Midas Touch Network, it is so critical that we follow the data and that we provide you with accurate information. So 
90 days ago, this is exactly what we predicted what would happen. I want to show you this clip because no other media organization was making this prediction back then. But this is what we told you 90 days ago. Play this clip. Stay tuned. It's my expectation. Again, I've been pretty good on these predictions, and no one's being so bold as to make this prediction yet, but I think you'll see an indictment, based on my own opinion, based on the data that I've seen, an indictment in the next 60 or 90 days of Santos for campaign finance-related violations. Everything is a fraud, everything is unethical, and it looks to be very criminal as well. And again, I'm just showing you that because I do think it's important that when we make these predictions, when we talk about, for example, with special counsel Jack Smith's doing, when we talk about what the Manhattan District Attorney's doing, when we talk about what Bonnie Willis is doing, when we talk about you know, what the New York Attorney General is doing. It's data-based, it's fact-based, and yeah, I know these videos may take a little longer to go through than a one minute and 30 second soundbite, but you're here for data. We're here for information together, and information is power, and it is important that we go through these filings together. So, as we pull up the indictment, you can see right here, um, the grand jury charges, you'll see it's a 13-count indictment. Uh, the defendant, George Anthony DeVolder Santos, also known as George Santos, who's a resident of Queens, Suffolk County. During the 2020 and 2022 election cycles, DeVolder Santos campaigned as a candidate for the United States House of Representatives. And on or about November 8, 2022, DeVolder Santos was elected to the United States House of Representatives for New York's 3rd Congressional District. I'll just let you know, that's the Congressional District where I grew up and where when I interned on the Hill, it was the 2nd Congressional District that became the 3rd Congressional District when there was redistricting. Uh, it goes on. Here, I just see this. It's like the most hilarious thing you've ever seen. You may recall the incident where Rudy Giuliani spread COVID via fart to Jenna Ellis, where they were at this made-up hearing they had spreading election disinformation, where seriously, Rudy Giuliani just farted on Jenna Ellis in Play this clip. The answer, point of order. the answer that I gave you is they didn't bother to interview a single witness. Just like you, they don't want to know the truth. And shortly thereafter, Jenna Ellis contracted COVID, but... <laughs> They didn't bother to interview a single witness. Just like you. They don't want to the world's problems. Today I saw the problem of all this insecurity in America, the violence, the terrorism, the mass shootings in our schools, in our churches, in our shopping malls, basically everywhere. For one, it's a gun problem. The other part is it's a corruption problem. The gun problem because all the Republican states deregulated it so that children can get weapons of war. President Clinton. Oh my gosh, you guys should have to see this. You may recall the incident where Giuliani <laughs> spread COVID. Open AI performed a suit. Oh my gosh, you guys should have to see this. This is like the most hilarious thing you've ever seen. You may recall <laughs> the incident where Rudy Giuliani spread COVID via fart 
to Jenna Ellis where they were at this <laughs> made-up hearing they had spreading election disinformation where seriously, Rudy Giuliani just farted on Jenna Ellis in and cultural framework that seeks to merge American and Christian identities. It suggests that real Americans are Christians and that true Christians hold a particular set of political beliefs. The Christian in Christian nationalism is more about ethno-national identity than religion. Christian nationalism is a gross distortion of the Christian faith that I and many others hold dear. Opposition to Christian nationalism is not opposition to Christianity, and a growing number of Christians feel a religious imperative to stand against Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism uses the language, symbols, and imagery of Christianity. In fact, it may look and sound like Christianity to the casual observer. However, closer examination reveals that it uses the veneer of Christianity to point not to Jesus the Christ, but to a political figure, party, or ideology. Christian nationalism often overlaps with and provides cover for white supremacy and racial subjugation. It creates and perpetuates a sense of cultural belonging that is limited to certain people associated with the founding of the United States, namely native-born white Christians. Christian nationalism is not patriotism. Patriotism is a healthy love of country. Nationalism is an allegiance to country that demands supremacy over all other allegiances. Christian nationalism relies on a cherry-picked and misleading version of American history in order to thrive. The Christian nation myth must downplay or ignore the role of indigenous communities, black Americans, immigrant populations, religious minorities, secular Americans, and all others who undercut the false narrative that the U.S. is special because it was founded by and for white Christians. Understanding Christian nationalism is imperative to both dismantling white supremacy and preserving religious freedom for all. Christianity does not unite Americans. Our belonging in American society must never depend on how we worship, what we believe, or how we identify religiously. Do not allow anyone to say that confronting Christian nationalism is somehow anti-Christian. All across this country, Christians are deeply alarmed by this ideology, especially the way it gives an illusion of respectability to white supremacy and undermines our nation's foundational commitment to ensure religious freedom for all.
the problem of white Christian nationalism is exactly fits with our mission of defending and extending religious freedom for all people. And that's because Christian nationalism strikes at the heart of the foundational ideas of what religious freedom means and how it's protected in this country. And that, of course, is with the institutional separation of church and state. Now that you've seen it, please share, favorite, comment, etc. Whatever we can do to help get this seen. We only know how to fight this when we know what it is, and Miss Tyler just spelled it out for us. On December 13th, Amanda Tyler, the executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee, or BJC, testified before a congressional committee looking into white supremacy and white Christian nationalism. Here's a few clips of what she had to say. Christian nationalism is a political ideology and cultural framework that seeks to merge American and Christian identities. It suggests that real Americans are Christians and that true Christians hold a particular set of political beliefs. The Christian in Christian nationalism is more about ethno-national identity than religion. Christian nationalism is a gross distortion of the Christian faith that I and many others hold dear. Opposition to Christian nationalism is not opposition to Christianity, and a growing number of Christians feel a religious imperative to stand against Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism uses the language, symbols, and imagery of Christianity. In fact, it may look and sound like Christianity to the casual observer. However, closer examination reveals that it uses the veneer of Christianity to point not to Jesus the Christ, but to a political figure, party, or ideology. Christian nationalism often overlaps with and provides cover for white supremacy and racial subjugation. It creates and perpetuates a sense of cultural belonging that is limited to certain people associated with the founding of the United States, namely native-born white Christians. Christian nationalism is not patriotism. Patriotism is a healthy love of country. Nationalism is an allegiance to country that demands supremacy over all other allegiances. Christian nationalism relies on a cherry-picked and misleading version of American history in order to thrive. The Christian nation myth must downplay or ignore the role of indigenous communities, black Americans, immigrant populations, religious minorities, secular Americans, and all others who undercut the false narrative that the U.S. is special because it was founded by and for white Christians. Understanding Christian nationalism is imperative to both dismantling white Tyler, supremacy Christian and preserving nationalism. religious freedom. Let's look it up. Tyler testifies uh, to Congress on Christian nationalism. BJC Oversight Committee Democrats Oversight Committee Democrats on YouTube
morning, Chairman Raskin and Ranking Member Mates and other members of the subcommittee. I'm Amanda Tyler, Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. As a faithful Christian and a patriotic American, I am honored Amanda to be Tyler, here this morning to offer testimony about the connection between Christian nationalism and white supremacy, why Christian nationalism must be addressed, and why I believe Christians have a special responsibility to address the harms of Christian nationalism. BJC has a long and consistent record of defending religious freedom for all, supporting both of the First Amendment's religion clauses, the No Establishment and Free Exercise clauses. We shared the coalition that pushed for passage of RIFRA. In July 2019, BJC launched Christians Against Christian Nationalism. It's a grassroots project of Christians from every congressional district in the country who oppose the rise of Christian nationalism and its threat to our faith and our country. Christian nationalism is a political ideology and cultural framework that seeks to merge American and Christian identities. It suggests that real Americans are Christians and that true Christians hold a particular set of political beliefs. The Christian in Christian nationalism is more about ethno-national identity than religion. Christian nationalism is a gross distortion of the Christian faith that I and many others hold dear. Opposition to Christian nationalism is not opposition to Christianity and a growing number of Christians feel a religious imperative to stand against Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism uses the language, symbols, and imagery of Christianity. In fact, it may look and sound like Christianity to the casual observer. However, closer examination reveals that it uses the veneer of Christianity to point not to Jesus the Christ, but to a political figure, party, or ideology. Christian nationalism often overlaps with and provides cover for white supremacy and racial subjugation. It creates and perpetuates a sense of cultural belonging that is limited to certain people associated with the founding of the United States, namely native-born white Christians. Christian nationalism is not patriotism. Patriotism is a healthy love of country. Nationalism is an allegiance to country that demands supremacy over all other allegiances. Christian nationalism relies on a cherry-picked and misleading version of an American history in order to thrive. The Christian nation myth must downplay or ignore the role of indigenous communities, black Americans, immigrant populations, religious minorities, secular Americans, and all others who undercut the false narrative that the U.S. is special because it was founded by and for white Christians. But the myth of a Christian nation is worse than just bad history. It undermines and contradicts the U.S. Constitution specifically the prohibition in Article 6 against religious tests for public office, one of the truly revolutionary aspects of the Constitution that laid the foundation for the U.S. being a faith freedom nation. As a Baptist, I became a leader in the fight against Christian nationalism 
Because of my increasing alarm about the violence it has inspired at our country's houses of worship, Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Chabad of Poway near San Diego. As recently as earlier this year at the top supermarket in Buffalo, Christian nationalism inspired white supremacist violence in public spaces. Christian nationalism helped fuel the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, yep. uniting disparate actors and infusing their political cause with religious fervor. We applaud this committee's sustained work to confront white supremacy and investigate its myriad causes. Understanding Christian nationalism is imperative to both dismantling white supremacy and preserving religious freedom for all. Christianity does not unite Americans. Our belonging in American society must never depend on how we worship, what we believe, or how we identify religiously. Do not allow anyone to say that confronting Christian nationalism is somehow anti-Christian. All across this country, Christians are deeply alarmed by this ideology, especially the way it gives an illusion of respectability to white supremacy and undermines our nation's foundational commitment to ensure religious freedom for all. So it really, should be... it's a pleasure and uh, a great honor. Um, um, let me gavel in now. Live stream's ready to go. Um, committee will come to order without objection. Uh, chair is authorized to declare a recess of the committee at any time. Um, I just I want to thank all of the distinguished members of this committee who are appearing both in person and on Zoom for their great hard work over the course of the 117th Congress. Uh, on matters of fundamental importance to the American people. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to work with uh, Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina, the ranking member, uh, who is a, a model of industry and seriousness and um, commitment to her constituents and to the country. And so it's been an honor to get to serve with you, Ms. Mace. Um, and I, I got to read your book before we got started, and I to recommend it to everybody in the company of men about her experiences. Uh, one of the first women graduates of the Citadel. Um, well, um, I want to recognize myself for an opening statement. I want to thank um, our excellent witnesses for joining us today. This is our seventh and it is our final of several um, years worth of hearings that we've conducted on the problem of violent white supremacy, a traditional and pernicious enemy of the voting rights, the civil rights, and the civil liberties of the American people. In prior hearings over the last three years, long before violent insurrectionists bearing Confederate battle flags uh, overran the Capitol on January 6, 2021, we found that violent white supremacy and its partner anti-democratic extremism today constitute the most serious domestic terror threat facing our people. Indeed, these same authoritarian and racist movements pose a similar danger to people living in uh, many democratic societies on earth. Just last week, German authorities arrested dozens of far-right extremists, including members of a royal house in Germany seeking restoration of the Second Reich 
an active duty, active duty German soldier, former members of the German police and elite special forces units, and neo-Nazi activists for allegedly participating in a violent right-wing plot to topple the German government and seize power. The coup plotters, many of wow. whom were heavily armed when arrested, were inspired by the American insurrection of January 6th and are followers of uh, deranged wow. online QAnon conspiracy theories. Oh, they profess that the democratic German government is an imposter corporate subsidiary of the United States run by the American deep state. The insurrection is planned to disrupt the German power grid and take parliament by force to impose a new authoritarian and anti-Semitic government. The German people and democracies around the world are fortunate that their law enforcement and intelligence agencies acted with speed and vigor to interrupt the conspiracy before yeah, the conspirators could succeed in staging a full-blown January 6th-style attack uh. on the German government. It would be comforting to believe that the threat of violent white supremacy has subsided here in America in the wake of more than 900 criminal prosecutions being brought by the United States Department of Justice against January 6th insurrectionists and rioters for assaulting federal officers, destroying federal property, interfering with federal proceeding, engaging in seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow or put down the government, and numerous other offenses. The threats have not subsided and are very much still with us today. On May 14, 2022, an 18-year-old white supremacist named Peyton Gendron jacked up on online propaganda uh, about the racist and anti-Semitic great replacement theory, entered a top supermarket in Buffalo with an illegally modified AR-15 semi-automatic rifle and murdered 10 African-American people, wounding three others. He pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, state charges, and is offered to plead guilty on federal charges, including hate crime charges based on his dedication to commit domestic terrorism. We are living through an onslaught of such violent threats and attacks taking place directly against political figures too. Everyone knows that Representative Gabby Giffords, of course, was the victim of an assassination attempt a decade ago at a constituent meeting in Arizona, and Representative Steve Scalise was also the victim of a deranged political shooter back in 2017 at baseball Gabby practice, Gabby Giffords. not far from the Capitol. A month ago, an extremist who was loaded up on internet conspiracy theories and made statements like Hitler did nothing wrong broke into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home in San Francisco and bludgeoned her 82-year-old husband, uh, Paul Pelosi, in the head with a hammer with the intent of kidnapping the Speaker and breaking her kneecaps. In the run-up to January 6th, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer was the target of a kidnapping and assassination plot by racist anti-government extremists. The ranking Our member, Ms. Mace, has seen her home vandalized and her privacy violated by someone who scrawled Antifa symbols on it. We live in a violent society, and the violence exists across the spectrum of political extremism, but the movements of violent white supremacy and anti-government extremism lead America in fomenting terroristic violence and disseminating propaganda to incite it. Both the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security identify White supremacy is the most lethally dangerous domestic terror threat our country faces. This hearing will help us to understand the continuing evolution of the white supremacist and extremist anti-government movement, specifically 
the strategic turn of major far-right groups to focus their wrath on local governments and school boards since the January 6th riot and insurrection and subsequent federal criminal prosecutions, the mobilization of white supremacist groups to attack, to attack the LGBTQ community in private clubs and public places, the emergence of Christian nationalism as an organizing ideological principle, the growing prominence of the Great Replacement Theory as a unifying field conspiracy theory for the motivation of far right-wing politics. Please consider this video highlighting the proliferation of extremist violence against Americans. troubling mix of neo-confederate, neo-Nazi, uh, anti-Semitic, and, and apparently, according to them, you know, pro-America. Racially motivated violent extremism, specifically of the sort that advocates for the superiority of the white race, uh, is a persistent, evolving threat. We have certainly seen, unmistakably, the kind of rise in domestic extremism tied to white supremacy in ways we've just never seen before. Buffalo officials are calling the mass shooting racially motivated violent extremism. But for some, that's not enough. A 180-page manifesto surfaced online shortly after the attack and took credit for the violence in the name of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I, came, I came from heaven. Yeah, God sent us here. Yep. So I pray to Almighty God and ask each of you to dig deep and steal yourselves for this war. Because of our covenant with God, we are equipped and delegated by Him to destroy every attempted The defendant's goal was to not necessarily capture Governor Whitmer, but it was to, quote, set off a second American civil war. part of this group who were uh, allegedly piled up in the back of a U-Haul truck. They were tipped off by a concerned citizen who said they witnessed what looked like a little army getting into the back of that truck. Police say 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long admitted to being responsible for the killings at three separate spas that left eight dead. Seven of the victims are women. Six are of Asian descent. We know who you are. We know who you are. Members of a white nationalist group show up at a school board meeting. Members of the Proud Boys stood watch at the meeting of the new Hanover County Board of Education. We've never seen white nationalist groups so obviously represented at a school board meeting before. Dozens of white supremacists marched through Boston today. The group yeah, wore white masks and was seen boarding Orange Line trains at the Haymarket Station. Some carried police shields and flags with them. They are members of a group called the Patriot Front of the Trio Life Synagogue conducting a peaceful service in their place of worship were brutally murdered by a gunman targeting them simply because of their faith. Another act of terror in America. The country again left to ask, where does this hate come from? But if they want some, they know where we'll be at. Proud of your boy. Come get some.
Um, I look forward to hearing the testimony. We will hear uh, from our witnesses um, and how we can all work together best in Congress and across the country to combat violent extremism when it appears. And with that, I now recognize the distinguished ranking member, Ms. Mace, for her opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and uh, the uh, love is likewise. Ditto. Uh, appreciate that. It's been an honor to serve with you on this subcommittee on civil rights and civil liberties. I've learned a lot and have enjoyed the colloquy and the debate that we've had and learning that we agree on so much. That, um, many of the lessons that we've you know, shared here. Testify uh, about Americans of all races, religions, creeds uh, deserve to achieve their American dream in a secure society where they don't have to fear harm simply on account of who they are, where they live, where they come from, or what their political affiliation is, skin color, gender orientation, etc. We hear a lot about threats to our democracy and constitution these days. Those threats are real. That warning is used so often to advance a political agenda that it has lost some of the impact that it should have. But let me be clear, the only alternatives to our constitutional system of government are a descent into authoritarianism, fascism, or the embrace of anarchy. Chairman Raskin, you and I agree that there are serious threats to our democratic ideals lurking on the horizon. We took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that there are those who seek to undermine the Constitution for their own ends, and evil people who want to damage our republic and harm our citizens. And as you mentioned in your opening remarks, um, I have seen both sides of the on this, uh, both uh, politically. America is founded on the idea enshrined in our Declaration of Independence, and one we've ever since been struggling to achieve for all Americans, that we're endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights among the the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our democratic ideals demand that we engage in a robust debate about how to solve the most challenging problems facing our country. This necessarily means that we're going to have disagreements and passions will flare, but part of the American experiment, as you know, Chairman Raskin, is the ability to debate these ideas and not fear the threats or attacks that, are, that may or may not come, and it often helps us to Our Constitution and the rule of law provide our viewpoints may be met with strong criticism, but they must never be met with violence or censorship, both of which threaten this American experiment. Firstly, we must not be tempted to misuse power to silence those we disagree with or censor lawful speech. And we've seen not just the Twitter files, but we've seen a number of examples over the last couple months where uh, censorship has been um, overreaching and one-sided. I'm a firm believer in the concept that free speech creates human interactions within the marketplace of ideas and enables us to, as one witness who appeared before Subcommittee April explained, feel like we can talk to people who disagree with us fervently to learn that they are people of goodwill who often want the same good things in society, but we just have different ways of getting there. Our goals are the same, but how we approach them may be different. Secondly, we must recognize that violence as a solution to problems or as an expression of extreme and hateful ideas, whether from the far right or the far left or anywhere in between, cannot be tolerated as it shows fear, suppresses civil discourse, and comes to a great human cost. And uh, it's not partisan as someone who's seen it on both sides. Uh, I've had my house trespassed on not once but twice in the last year. I've had my car keyed. I've had my family, including my children, threatened for political positions that I have taken. Um, and as you mentioned, Chairman Raskin, uh, you know, in 2017, when Republicans were targeted and Steve Scalise was shot multiple times in that tragic incident, Rand Paul was attacked by his 
neighbor. Um, we've had instances, we've had the FBI called to this committee and talking about <laughs> Antifa and anarchist attacks, something that they don't really, the FBI doesn't truly track in terms of their metrics. They don't uh, call out Antifa for what it is in their internal metrics we learned earlier this year. My district, my district knows this truth all too well as we continue to mourn uh, nine churchgoers murdered by a racist domestic terrorist at Mother Emanuel in 2015. Um, racially motivated, motivated, violent extremists are assessed to be particularly lethal and particularly dangerous, especially as they're mo like, most likely to be and conduct lone wolf uh, attacks. White supremacy violence is a very real threat, and so are the threats of emanating from other pernicious and racist ideologies. We must be confront a spike in anti-Semitism in the United States with documented cases of targeted harassment and assaults against Jewish Americans on the rise in recent years. Anti-Semitic ideologies lead to violence against Jewish people. And I have always like condemned anti-Semitism, whether it's found Jesus. at a dinner party or echoed in the halls of Congress. We must also confront rising discrimination and violence against Asian Americans, as you mentioned in your video as well. We must strengthen our domestic society and ensure that we're doing everything in our power to protect the Constitution. We're not flushing it down the toilet or putting it through a shredder. Not now, not ever. The rule of law and ensure Americans have the security they need to prosper and achieve their American uh, dream. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And mass I murders. Because well, what mass murders are white supremacists. specifically associate law. myself with everything that you said about the Constitution and how uh, the only alternative to the Constitution, if you think you want to replace it, is going to be authoritarianism, fascism, or a collapse into anarchy. And uh, uh, I appreciate that very much, and that's very much in the spirit of the views of our founders. So thank you, Ms. Mason. Uh, before we go to our witnesses, I want to um, uh, recognize uh, the distinguished chair of the Oversight Committee, Ms. Maloney, for her opening statement. Thank you. I, I want to thank you. Uh Chairman Raskin and, and also Ranking Member Mesa for holding this incredibly important uh, hearing. Uh, too many members of Congress like Representative Mace and people in this country are innocently attacked by, by uh, the violence in this country and I think the recent attack on the Speaker's husband showed that you're not even safe in your own home uh, which is outrageous here in America. So this uh, hearing is very important and Chairman, your leadership of the subcommittee has been exemplary, and I look forward to following the work you will do moving forward on this issue and many others. Uh, white supremacy is one of the most uh, terrible threats to our democracy today. Both the FBI and DHS recognize white supremacy as the deadliest domestic terror threat facing the United States. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, there are more than 733 hate groups operating in the United States today. This includes 98 white nationalist groups, 61 anti-Muslim anti groups, 65 anti-LGBTQI plus groups, 16 geo-confederate groups, and 18 Clan this is a horrifying amount of people and numbers, and hate is on the rise here in our country. Uh, that is why it's critical that Congress continue to shed light on this growing cancer and come up with substantive solutions to the 
address hate and violence. We may disagree on politics, but there is no room in this country for discrimination, violence, and hate. Thank you again, Chairman Raskin and Ranking Member Mace, for holding this vital hearing and all of our panelists today and for your life's work. Thank you, and I yield back. And thank you, Chair Maloney, for your inspired uh, and extraordinary leadership of our committee, and thank you for joining us in the subcommittee today. I want to introduce our panel of witnesses. Uh, we have first Eric Ward, Executive Vice President of Race Forward and Senior Advisor to the Western State Senate. Center. He joins us over the phone. Then we'll hear from William Siegel, the Vice President of the Center for Extremism at the Anti-Defamation League. Then we'll hear from Alejandro Caraballo, uh, a instructor for the Cyber Law Clinic at Harvard Law School. Next we'll hear from Asra Nahani, fellow of journalism and women's network. Then we'll hear from Amanda Tyler, Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. And finally, from Professor Mary McCord, the Executive Director for the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University Law Center. The witnesses will all be unmuted, so we can swear them in. Would you all please rise and raise your right hands if you would. Uh, do you swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Thank you. Let the record show that all of the witnesses have answered in the affirmative. Thank you. You may be seated without objection. Your uh, more elaborate written statements will be made part of the record, but you will all be recognized for five minutes. And with that, Mr. Ward, you are now recognized for your testimony. Good morning, Chairman Raskin and members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you about the ongoing crisis of anti-democracy extremism and white nationalism currently present in this country. I commend you for using this forum to address the urgent threats posed to American democracy. White nationalists and other bigoted groups are driving harassment campaigns against elected officials, law enforcement, leaders of color, the LGBTQ community, school officials, and many more at an alarming rate. This harassment has a chilling effect on the ability of many people to engage in civil society. But I believe that, despite an acceleration in anti-democracy formation, it is possible to build a shared commitment to a country where elected officials, business and nonprofit institutions, faith leaders, and ordinary citizens join together and reject the violence and anti-Semitic conspiracies of white nationalism and begin the important work of closing the door to political violence and stopping anti-democracy extremists from mainstreaming their tactics and agenda. I live and work in the Pacific Northwest, a place deeply shaped and impacted by anti-democracy extremism. This region has been a proving ground for extremist and anti-democracy formation. Over these past five years, as the fight for inclusive democracy has become both a national and international commitment, it becomes imperative that we soberly assess the drivers of these threats and invest in the communities and local governments who are working to combat them. First, it is important to understand that the insurrection did not end on January 6, 2021. Across the country, in small communities and towns, the insurrection is still a daily reality for many Americans. Health workers, 
educators, local government officials, civil rights activists, election workers, and community leaders are the targets. They are bearing the brunt of intimidation, physical violence, and acts of domestic terrorism from those who were supportive or took part in the insurrection. Perhaps no incident illustrating the continuity of January 6th is better covered than the violent assault on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, in October. The attacker stands accused of promoting anti-Semitic and racist language and conspiracy theories. This incident brings home the crisis for those communities that are being targeted in much the same way, but without the benefit of federal intention and mainstream media attention. It is also demonstrated that the cultural shift that has occurred in the almost two years since the insurrection is shift to an environment where individuals feel empowered to carry out political violence on their own or an increased oversight committee democratically unpredictable way. The reports of attacks on electrical infrastructure in North Carolina, Oregon, and Washington are raising the stakes. Law enforcement is reportedly investigating posts by extremists on online forums that encourage attacks on critical infrastructure. Whether the North Carolina attack was intended to disrupt the local LGBTQ event, this after a series of attacks on the LGBT community in recent weeks and months. Much of the violence and intimidation I've been describing is perpetrated by those who have been influenced by the Great Replacement, a genocidal conspiracy theory belief that is grounded in anti-Semitism. It falsely purports that global forces orchestrated a master plan to undermine white political power and white existence. Depending on the version of the theory one comes across, conspiracy might be run by global elites or an international cabal, moneyed interests, all thinly veiled references to Jewish people. This is anti-Semitism in its most modern form. It is a form of racism. It places Jews not as a religious other, but as a racialized other. If we seek to counter domestic extremism, we must recognize that anti-Semitism and the great replacement theory remain the energizing principle behind white nationalism. With the federal government's help, local governments and communities can respond with strategies that strengthen democratic practice while closing the space. I'm just thinking of a cartoon or a drawing, basically. Uh, yeah, a cartoon, a comic. That, uh, um, you know, that quote, it starts out with that quote, um, LBJ, was it, that said, all you have to do is, uh, it was the Southern Strategy, I think it was called, the, um, you know, all you have to do is get um, poor white people to look down on poor black people, or middle class people, middle class whites to look down on, uh, you know, basically scapegoat, and then you can, you can, um, steal what's in their pockets, you know, you can rob them blind. So anyway, and, and then pointing out that, you know, it could be a TikTok video too, um, like a 15 second one, you know, that, that quote, it give the quote, whoa, whoa, whoa. and then, um, 
well, this is white America. This is you. This is you, the, the, you know, you're just a pawn. You're just a, you're being manipulated to look down on everybody else so they can get you to vote against your best interest and our best interest. It's for political and hate violence. Respectfully, I offer three actions that could reduce the threat to local communities to require federal agencies to provide respective action and three without extremism in law enforcement and the military we remain inspired by the broad coalitions of local elected leaders civil servants and community members who raise their voices to inspire individually every day thank you for your time and attention thank you very much for your testimony mr siegel you're recognized for your five minutes Thank you, Chairman Rathbun, the ranking member of the committee, and for the opportunity to speak today to address the ongoing threats of white supremacy and extremism and the impact they have on our communities, our democratic institutions, and the very fabric of American society. Since 1913, ADL has worked to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment for all. We have a world-class team of analysts and investigators uh, who track and respond to extremism and threats from across the ideological spectrum. Our work shows that domestic extremism remains a clear and present danger to our democracy. While the Jewish, Black, LGBTQ communities continue to be primary targets for white supremacy, these narratives are often combined in the minds of extremists who seek to create fear and anxiety and erode trust within our society and in our public institutions. It is important to underscore how broadly and profoundly these forms of extremism impact all Americans regardless of how they identify, their political affiliations, or where they live. From Charleston to Charlottesville, Pittsburgh to Jersey City, El Paso to Buffalo, we have seen the deadly consequences of these conspiratorial and hate-fueled ideologies and movements. And in this moment, we are watching the dangerous normalization of ideologies that animate white supremacy and other forms of extremism. Thanks to disinformation and toxic conspiracy theories, including those surrounding the pandemic, election denial, and the great replacement theory, once fringe beliefs are taking root in our public discussion. Blame Trump. This normalization could not happen Blame without elected officials, television pundits, and other high-profile influencers legitimizing these views. A recent study by ADL and the Princeton's Bridging Divide Initiative documented the proliferation of threats and harassment against local officials. These threats discourage civil, civic engagement, increase social and political division, and terrorize elected officials. But we also need to address threats from inside our institutions. 
Another ADL report identified hundreds of individuals on the Oath Keepers membership list in sensitive positions, including law enforcement, military personnel, and elected officials. Extremists thrive in times of political and social unrest. And technical tools and platforms help extremists reach, recruit, and radicalize more efficiently than ever before. The Buffalo shooter, who earlier this year left 10 people dead in a city reeling in horror, was drawn to hateful content on 4chan. He incorporated this content into his online manifesto. He used Twitch and Discord to record his views and ultimately amplify live footage of his attack. Modern extremists have developed a deadly blueprint. They prepare their social media strategies to signal back to their online communities at the same time they are preparing their weapons. And thanks to inconsistent action by Meta and Twitter, who continue to put profits over people, extremism continues to incubate and thrive on mainstream social media platforms. Yeah. Last week, ADL issued a report showing that exposure to white supremacist ideologies in online games more than doubled in 2022. Among young gamers ages 10 to 17, 15% have been exposed to white supremacist ideologies. It is clear the time to fight back against the rising tide of hate and extremism is right now. Congress has advanced <clears throat> some promising initiatives, such as increasing nonprofit security grants, but many of those are piecemeal or reactive and fail to keep up with the pace and breadth of the challenge. We need whole of government solutions. This is why ADL introduced its comprehensive Civil Rights Forward Protect Plan, which includes calls to pass an appropriations bill that resources to the threat, grow the nonprofit security grant program, combat extremism within our institutions, including through NDAA, and the complicity of social media services in facilitating extremism, establish an independent clearinghouse for online extremist content, and finally, make hate crime reporting mandatory. I thank you for your leadership in ending the scourge of extremism and hate and violence, and I urge you all to work across the aisle to find lasting bipartisan solutions to this problem. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Siegel, for your testimony. I recognize now um, Professor Carabayo for her five minutes. Good morning, Chairman Raskin, Ranking Member Mace, Chairwoman Maloney, and members of the subcommittee. My name is Alejandra Carabayo, and I am a clinical instructor at Harvard Law School's Cyber Law Clinic and LGBTQ rights advocate. I've worked in LGBTQ rights advocacy for years as a civil rights attorney, and I have monitored anti-LGBTQ extremist content online as part of my advocacy work. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you in my personal capacity to discuss the pressing issues of rising white supremacy in the context of anti-LGBTQ hate and the ways that social media have amplified this issue and made it worse. In the balance of my testimony, I will seek to document in more detail the nexus between white supremacy and the recent rise in extreme threats against the LGBTQ community. Additionally, I will provide some recommendations for how Congress could better hold social media companies accountable for their role in amplifying this rise in extremism, while also aiding law enforcement and civic society groups in limiting extremist conduct that endangers and harms vulnerable, marginalized groups. We only need to look at recent events to gain an understanding of the extent of the problem. At the beginning of this month, on the weekend of December 2nd, several extremist groups targeted the LGBTQ community. 
This wave of bigoted action was caused by the Proud Boys, the anti-Semitic Goyam Defense League, Patriot Front, and other white supremacist groups. This weekend of hate comes just weeks after five people were murdered and at least 19 people were injured in a shooting at Club Q, an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. At the start of the week, the Department of Homeland Security Bulletin warned of broad threats against LGBTQ Jewish and immigrant communities. The weekend itself began with the arrest of a Texas man for making death threats against a Boston physician who provides gender-affirming care to transgender patients. This doctor was affiliated with the National LGBTQ Health Center at Fenway Health, an organization of which I am proud to serve as a board member. In Columbus, Ohio, armed militia members, Proud Boys, and Patriot Front showed up to forcibly shut down a holiday-themed drag event at the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Columbus. In Lakeland, Florida, the neo-Nazi group Matsock Florida carried swastika flags and banners that called drag queens, quote, pedophiles with AIDS. They also used a projector to place text on the building call for the death of pedophiles, clearly oh meaning God. that drag queens, when read in context with their banners,